Welcome to the wonderful world of wine, exploring all things wine with you. We are your hosts, Kim Simone and Mark Lenzi, and you can find us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine. Welcome to the wonderful world of wine. We are your hosts, Mark and Kim, and every week we talk about current trends and topics in the wine world. And we like to do a lot of our own individual research as well. So, Mark, anything interesting that you found uh, while Googling random wine topics this week? I was looking at the number of employees in a brewery versus a winery, and there was a a chart I saw that showed in 2006 to 2016, and they compared the numbers. So, Kim, in 2006, more employees for a brewery or a winery? The average numbers. Mm, I'm going to go with brewery. Brewery. You are correct. In 2006, 65 average employees for a brewery, 18.7 for wine. So, huge. So, is this because there are more large breweries out there? Because I would assume it's huge number, right? Yeah, I, mean, I it, think so. You have family wineries; you might have four people, mm-hmm. you know, employees. So then they did it again ten years later, 2016. Beer was now 20.6, down from 65 average, which probably to me shows a trend that the beer industry, the big guys, are kind of getting hurt by the craft people, mm-hmm. so they're cutting back a little bit. So this isn't total people working in average, breweries. Average number, average of size employees per. Huh. the industry like brewery wine yeah so that sort of says that brewery size is dropped you know, it's, it's smaller so we have a lot more little guys than we have the big guys but That's the very bad interesting news stat. wine employees went from 18.7 in 2006 down to 14.8 Hmm. Which that's not good for us in the in the wine world. No, so we want more wine people. Out more there. wine. So just a little, another little stat about uh, numbers and employment. Huh. It shows down though, which shows is down. which is sad. The topic that we often cover, which is near and dear to my heart, sparkling wines. And we have a great article from the Daily Beast that talks about sparkling wines from England that are starting to rival champagne in quality and in flavor. And this is one of those silver lining to certain regions starting to get a little bit warmer than they have traditionally been, is that now we have some newer wine growing areas opening us up to us. And I think one of the most exciting ones is in southern england where we are getting some really great sparkling wine now and once again i'll say to our listeners a sparkling story always works its way on our list somehow kim <laughs> being the bubbly person i get always, so excited about these articles always working them in so two things kim i think we should talk about to our listeners on this it mentioned climate change is affecting why the British can now do this uh, so well. So first off, let's talk cl- uh, the climate versus the location. France having some issues we've talked about lately. So now England is turning into a better climate to grow because they were a little bit north of France. Mm-hmm. And these particular regions are closer to the water, which makes them 
a little bit actually better for growing grapes. You wouldn't think that coastal sites necessarily are the better places for growing grapes, but if you're near a larger body of water, you tend to have more consistent temperature. So it's a little bit warmer in the winter and it's a little bit cooler in, in the summer. And wine grapes really do like that. So we see a lot of coastal areas that are, are very, very good for growing grapes. I mean, think of California, think of Bordeaux, and now think of Southern England. So that you mentioned water and, and climate. It's cold and it's damp, which is perfect for sparkling wine grapes, right? Chardonnay and yep. So sparkling Noir. wine likes it to be a little bit cooler anyway. So that's a benefit. So it's perfect climate conditions. And they were saying, they were comparing the sunlight hours, which is key for, for uh, grape development. In Champagne, they get an average of uh, 1,600 hours a year. And in England, actually Champagne was like 1,650. In England, 1,600. So mm-hmm. sunlight hours for grape growing was pretty similar, right? which makes sense. And then they did a taste test a couple times, and I'm sure this was a, a British study or British article. So they were saying they've done taste tests and people are picking now the English version of sparkling over champagne and taste tests. Which I've had some, And I've had some of them and they're very tasty. They're a little bit harder to get your hands on. And price-wise, they, they kind of rival champagne. So champagne's up there in on the pricing scale and, and these English sparkling wines are very similarly priced. So um, I think it's a little hard for people to maybe say, well, I'm going to try something new and spend $45 a bottle on it when you don't know what it's all about. So that's why I think these tasting things are are really beneficial because people get an opportunity to try them and give their opinions on them without necessarily having to splurge on that bottle. You've never really said a bad thing of sparkling wine to me, so... Did I say something bad? No, Just the I'm price? Saying, you, no, you, <laughs> you were saying you, you liked it or it's good product. I've never heard you say anything bad mm. about a sparkling, really. So. I'm biased. Now, they did mention, Kim, there was 700... They said a number of 750. Was that growers or producers of sparkling wine? And it was a high number. I'm yeah. thinking it's growers of, of grapes. grapes I think it. so, too, because there there isn't that high of a number of producers. Actually, um, it was 750 growers. It was ten. I just kind of read my right, and it's ten to fifteen producers. That sounds that sounds more right. I have only seen maybe four different producers. I think available here in the states, so it's definitely a smaller number. And similarly to what we see in Champagne, there are a lot more people growing the grapes than actually making Champagne. So a lot of it goes to big Champagne houses that will buy in grapes from a lot of these smaller growers that are maybe um, maybe family owned or maybe have are working with long term contracts with some of these bigger champagne houses and it retails average forty dollars so a yeah, little, low, right. little lower than than champagne but you have to think about the the smaller production less you know producers i think it's a great value in the in the sparkling world to and sparkling wine is very labor intensive to make it takes a long time it takes years and years at the winery for that wine to be made and to be ready so that does add to the cost yeah it's a good point because this is the traditional champagne method of production which is costly and time consuming so mm-hmm. it does add to the cost it's not made like Prosecco where they're just cranking it out. So it is a quality, I would consider it a quality product. And one of the cool things that I think is that soil-wise, I know we get kind of geeky when we talk about dirt, but the soil in this part of England is very, very similar to what you see in Champagne. And if you look at it from a a geological standpoint, um, they're almost the same exact soils. So sometimes we see areas that have similar soil structure producing wines that then will taste similar to each other. So I think that's another thing that this region has going for it is that because the soil is so similar to champagne, you end up with a final style of wine that is more like it than not to.
You're listening to The Wonderful World of Wine, and we are your hosts, Mark Lindsay and Kim Simone, exploring all things wine with you. You can find Kim on her website, vinitaswineworks.com. You can find myself at franklinliquors.com. If you'd like to follow our show, you can find us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine, and you can find past episodes on SoundCloud or iTunes. Next, we'd like to talk to you about an article we saw in Esquire about uh, Bottles and James wine coolers are making a comeback. Kim, I am a lot older than you. Do you remember the <laughs> Bottles and James Ads, product of You're years ago? You're not that much 80s. older than I am. But 80s, you were illegally drinking I, I was not wine. drinking them, but I was watching commercials, and I do remember the commercials. So no, I was not drinking uh, wine coolers back in the days of Bartles and James, but I do remember seeing the two uh, the two old guys on yeah. the commercials for them. Well, I'm glad you mentioned the two older gentlemen. <laughs> this article was saying Bartles and James was a, an original wine cooler producer in the 80s, and now it's reinventing itself. But the, they started with the history of Bartles and James, and people might recall that it was always a commercial, two older gentlemen sitting on their porch in their rockers. They used that for their marketing technique. And I think it was a Super Bowl, they said in 80s, something Super Bowl was the big release of it. Do you remember the two gentlemen's names? No. No. Well, the product is Bottles and James. So, it's, so one of them is supposed to have the last name of Bottles the, and the other. That James. was their last name. So it was Frank Bottles and Ed James. But they and weren't real people, were they? They, they were real actors, well, but yes. But they were the marketing behind the, the brand, and their idea was to have older people sell to the younger generation, which is you know pretty unique in the <laughs> in the marketing world. The product itself is owned by Gallo, and it was started in 1981, and it was the first to the so-called homemade wine coolers to be bottled. And in the past, can we talk to our listeners, Franklin being a huge wine cooler town, having its own Franklin wine cooler. And when we started our retail business was just about the time that this peaked and it was all wine coolers at mm-hmm. the time. And at the time, it was real <clears throat> wine in the, the drinks. Right. And that, I think, is the interesting takeaway from this article about Bartles and James and that wine coolers are now starting to make a comeback is because they went away for a long time. And I don't know that a lot of people realize that for the last 30 years, we really haven't had wine coolers on the market. So in the 80s, it was wine-based beverages that were light and fruity and sweet. But then at the beginning of 1991, there was a new tax that was put onto wine. And so all of these beverages that were using wine as their base decided that they would move to something else because it was so much less expensive. So wine coolers pretty much went away in the early 90s and became malt-based beverages. And that's really where we see things at the moment. And now there seems to be this resurgence of wine-based things. And we do see a lot of wine-based cocktails out there. I mean, sangria is super popular. Um, your Franklin cooler with the red wine and orange soda. Is that, yep, is that orange, the, the mix Italian there? Italian wine, orange soda. <laughs> Yep. So, yeah, and I don't think that a lot of people realize that, you know, we still use the term wine cooler, but there pretty much have been no wine coolers on the market for decades. And you mentioned, Kim, the Congress had this idea, you know, the tax rate, which was per gallon at the time 
in the 80s when it came out, it was 17 cents a gallon. And then it went to a dollar seven a gallon. So you got to think, you know, Gallo, they were making 120 million gallons of this a year. You That's times a big that tax. by a dollar almost tax. Yeah. They said, no, we can, we're not doing this anymore, even though it was very popular. And at the time, like you said, it vanished. It hasn't been on my shelves in years. And then they said, oh, we're bringing this back. And you're like, why would you bring this back? But then they're saying, we're getting back to wine base. So like you had mentioned, Kim, the malt thing was big after this. Now we're seeing seltzers mm-hmm. hitting the shelf. So the bases are all changing, but they want to get back to the original idea. And they're probably riding on that you know, popularity of the spiked seltzers that are out there. I mean, that is one of the hot trends in, in alcoholic beverages at the moment and things that really do appeal to a younger generation. So, I mean, it's probably smart on their part to be maybe reinventing a product that they've had for a really long time, make it a little bit more modern, change the flavors up, appeal it to younger drinkers. And it, it seems that they are not necessarily the exact same flavor profile that they had been before. You know, maybe they're um, a little less sweet, a little bit lower in alcohol, working with what people uh, have for their expectations for these uh, lighter, fruitier beverages on the market at the moment. Yeah, let's let's talk a little follow-up on details of what you just said, Kim. Modern, because they got away from the bottle. They went to cans, went to cans right? Yeah. So the glass is gone. And the flavor profiles, the original flavors were peach, I think blackberry or black cherry, something like that. Now they they're very unusual flavors. Ginger, lemon, cucumber, lime, grapefruit, green tea, and watermelon mint. Hmm. It's a very like fruity herbal blends. It's, yeah. it's almost like, you know, how polar seltzer comes out with all the different seasonal flavors. It uh, reminds me of, of those. Modern flavors. But, right. You know, it's like almost leaning towards the spirits, you know, blending things. You're seeing vodka doing the kind of the same thing. It's mm-hmm. not just regular vodka. It's mint vodka. So you had mentioned uh, low alcohol. They're only 4% alcohol. Low sugar. They're saying low calorie, 120 calories, which compared to the seltzer market is actually pretty higher Mm -hmm. calorie, but it is low alcohol. That's about the calorie count of a glass of white wine. Yeah. So, you know, to be honest, I I haven't seen any real demand for the product, but I like that they bring it back. I still have, Kim, and we'll have to take your picture. I still have um, Ed and Frank cardboard cutout in my basement. Do you really? Yeah. (laughs) You can't put your face in their face, but you can stand with them. Take a Um, picture with them. So, yeah, every once in a while I break it out and and show how long we've been in business by the cutouts you used to have. So we still have it. But interesting change, something old coming back. We'll see what the market thinks. You're listening to The Wonderful World of Wine. We're your hosts, Mark and Kim. You can find out more information about Mark at his website, franklinliquors.com, and more information about myself at vinitaswineworks.com. So we often see European wine producers uh, interested in moving to different regions and starting wineries in different parts of the world. And one of the wineries that I visited on my trip to France was uh, Louis Jadot, Maison Louis Jadot in Burgundy. And they have a new project in Oregon. And this is something that we actually do see from time to time, that there are a lot of producers from Burgundy who are interested in starting wineries, buying land, making wine uh, in Oregon, because there is a lot of similarity between these two regions. They both make Pinot Noir and Chardonnay quite well. And it's exciting to see well-established producers uh, start new projects in new places. I followed this line, Kim. It's called Resonance. Mm -hmm. And I tasted it only because they said it was a Jadot product. 
product in, in Oregon. And I think maybe a year before, there was another producer, Burgundy producer, that had bought a vineyard in Oregon, and I loved it. And that's why I tried this brand and brought it in. But it's in Oregon, a good AVA in Oregon. Did you, you were in Burgundy at mm-hmm. Jadot. Were they promoting their American line? We talked about it. Yeah, we didn't we didn't taste any of the wines over there, but we definitely had conversations uh, with the folks at Jadot about this new project that so they've they been working on. Do they even have it over there for the like in their wine room? For it people was to try? not in the no. no, it was not in the wine room to try, and it wasn't in um, in their wine store either. It's not a, a lower priced Pinot Noir here. It's it's a thirty five dollar retail bottle. So, but it's good quality, and I believe you got to help me with my geography, Kim. That Oregon and Burgundy, same latitude. Is that the similar? Whole? Yes. I don't know if it's exactly the same, but that's one of the reasons why the thinking is that this would be a great place for growing these Burgundian styles of wine and these Burgundian grapes, is because they're on on very similar levels, even though they're halfway across the world from each other so they had mentioned some stats came about the oregon vineyard it was um organic it was dry farmed it was only like 20 acres is organics big at jadot in, in france did they talk organics because it's not like really maybe this vineyard itself I, I was thinking they only went here because of those characteristics of the vineyard but i think because of the fact that this is in an area that is what we call a rain shadow so it doesn't get a lot of rain it's not super humid it's a little bit easier to do that organic farming because you're not worried as much about mildew and mold and rot and those sorts of issues. Burgundy is a little bit wetter, so I think it's a little bit more of a problem. So that this actually might have been a benefit of finding this area for them because if they had wanted to do organic uh, viticulture and it was a little bit harder where they were, having a place like this where the natural just area around them makes it a little bit easier to go organic uh, would have would have made it an, an area that would have been very appealing for them. I'm surprised they really didn't use use the Jado logo as much uh, yeah they are kind of quiet about it it's not it's not really this big flashy hey we're you know we're Jadot in Oregon now I mentioned Kim to the listeners I I had mentioned that the Oregon is dry farm do you want to kind of give a wine 101 on what dry farmed means in the wine world sure so dry farmed generally means that you're not going to do is it no irrigating at all or just very little irrigating as little as possible is my my understanding to make the vines so the vines have to struggle and and the more that a vine has to work to find water, um, the more concentrated and the more flavorful those grapes are going to be. So if that vine has to dig down really, really deep in order to find water, um, it's going to struggle more and it's therefore going to produce better quality grapes. Uh, there are different ways of irrigating. So there are some places that do very minimal like drip irrigation and there are other places that don't water at all and just rely on either the winter uh, winter rains or whatever happens to come about during the season. What did you know? to set Jadot in France of irrigation. It's Is it legal? I don't or, believe so. No, I didn't see. weird French laws. Yeah. Where you, they don't, unless there's some extreme mm-hmm. heat issue, they'll, the government will say, yeah, you can. But most of the times they say you can't even Yeah, irrigate. I don't think that they're allowed to. And I, and I think, honestly, it's wet enough there that it's not much of a problem. What else about uh, Jadot would you see? I, did, did I, I recently see someone just passed away from Jadot famous? No? Maybe it was another so. French vineyard. Yeah. Some reason I thought one of the head people had 
that passed away, but I read too many stories mixing people up. But I know who you're thinking of. It was somebody in Beaujolais. Yes. Yeah. 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 So it wasn't Jad Dome. No. Good. Um, but anyway, so um, one thing that stood out for me um, about talking about this new site and this new project that is very much in the line of thinking of when we were speaking to them in France was this idea of, of place having value uh, and the idea that where the grapes come from really impact what the flavor of the final wine is going to be. Um, we call this terroir in, in wine speak, but I, I like that in this article about this new winery that they called it somewhereness. Um, and I really, I liked that, you know, this, this idea that place is important and that every place has its own individuality and that somewhereness is important. And this is something that is very, very important when it comes to Burgundy specifically. Every little vineyard site is cultivated on its own and everything is named by that specific place. Um, and they're they're really bringing this philosophy uh, with them over to Oregon. Can you imagine this uh, Oregon vineyard they get approached by Jadot, comes to your, seeks you out mm. and says, I'm buy, I want to buy your 20 this acres. This feels so special. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know you. you have something yeah. when a Burgundy producer, you know, the top end Pinot people in the world uh, want your property. Like mm-hmm. you said, the terroir, that's that's special geeky special but special so yeah so new wines coming out all the time and you know it's this balance of experience but also uh new stuff going on as well You're listening to The Wonderful World of Wine and with your hosts, Mark Lindsay and Kim Simone, exploring all things wine with you. If you'd like to get more information about Kim, please go to her website at vinitaswineworks.com. If you'd like to get more information about myself, please go to franklinliquors.com and you can find us on our Facebook page. We would love your questions at The Wonderful World of Wine. Next, we have surprisingly another sparkling wine article. Are you uh, making this... fun of me? No, 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 no. It's just I see a trend <laughs> happening here on the wonderful world of wine a new spumante which is a sparkling wine from Emilia romagna region in italy i love talking italian kim and you love sparkling so let's combine the two talk to our listeners about this new sparkler from romagna so i thought this was cool because we do see these new regions and these new wines pop up every once in a while we're actually seeing a lot out of spain these days and we do see some new ones from italy like every year there's probably a couple and so we have this brand new DOC of a sparkling wine category from the central part of Italy from from Emilia Romagna and it's called Nove Bole. So these are sparkling wines that are made from indigenous Italian grape varieties and right now the style seems to be somewhere between a Prosecco and a Champagne. I don't think it's they don't have a a Champagne method yet so it's much more uh, much more like Prosecco so maybe riding on the coattails of the popularity of Prosecco at the moment. Yeah and they have white and red versions. White and red. You mentioned just briefly, Kim, that it's a new DOC. So so Italy, we've talked in the past, has a pyramid of Italian laws, the DOCG being the highest, DOC is the next, so, but there are over 300 DOC. So DOC gets back to your terroir. It's linking a place to a product, in this case, a Spamonte from Romagna. So right. it's basically, in, in Italy, it's basically a town or a small region. So mm-hmm. you can really narrow it down. Uh, 
the white grapes, I believe, Kim, were Trebbiano in, what was it? It was a native uh, Yeah, the local? other grape variety is called Famoso, um, which you would think that if it was called Famoso, you know, called famous, that it would be a very well-known grape variety. But it's actually not. And I went back and I did a little bit of research about this grape variety because I have never heard of it before. Um, and it turns out that this is one of those grape varieties that was on the brink of extinction. There were literally only two rows of vines left of this particular grape variety. And it was brought back to life by some locals who were interested in keeping it going. And within 10 years, uh, they had enough that they could go to the government of Italy and say, hey, we want to register this grape variety as an official grape variety. Um, And now 20 years later, they're actually making a new DOC with it. So I thought that was that was pretty cool. So it's a very aromatic white grape variety, very floral, very tropical, very exotic. Um, And depending on how you make it, it can retain those big flavors and those big aromas. If you age it, then then it gets a little bit more more minerally and a little bit more complex. So it sounds like it's a really cool blending grape to put with the more neutral Trebbiano, but good acidity, which makes it great for sparkling wine. And this would be something I'd be really interested in trying if we ever see it here in the States. You mentioned the grapes, Kim, and this is the nightmare for educators mm-hmm. and people learn about wine in Italy. Every day there's a new grape, there's a new region there, the government's certifying. And I'm going to burst your bubble because I did research. There is nothing from this DOC yet being sold. I know. I saw that. Yeah. So it's only being sold locally in Italy, but who knows? Well, you know, I'm sure we're always seeing I'm sure you're things, going so. there next week after <laughs> Spain, right? So, so they had uh, two producers. They felt that the uh, Prosecco trend was hot and Lambrusco is making a comeback. Mm-hmm. So they said, hey, let's try this, right? Wait. Which the, Italy is always thinking, you know, looking at the next trend, looking at defining these grapes to to come up with new products. And they mentioned the, I think the, there's no red, right? It's a rosé made from, they're making it rosé from Sangiovese they're adding, correct? I don't think it was a total red. I don't think it's red, red. It's not red like Lambrusco. I think that there is a, a pink style in there, but they are looking at making other styles as well. So there was some talk about there being a full champagne method. So like a, a drier, but um, stronger bubble, stronger carbonation. And who knows if this is something that takes off, then maybe there'll be a red as well. But the red of the region is Lambrusco. So red, sparkling, super excellent with the food from this part of the country. And this, yeah, is, and you, this is exciting. You mentioned Lambrusco. Lambrusco is traditionally sweet. This is not sweet no, style. This is, not. this is a dry sparkling. So yep. it's going kind of the other direction of what the region is known for. Um, they had to work the Sangiovese in for a rosé because they, they're saying Romagna is really the birthplace of Sangiovese. So they want to use it. It's native to their area. They want to promote it. So now, Kim, I have to, we're, you're the foodie. Mm-hmm. We have to mention how perfect these wines would be with foods. Romagna is probably the food capital of yep. Italy. And they mentioned a ton of foods. Traditionally, when I think of Romagna, I think Lambrusco, I think antipasto. Yes. And I still think this would work with it. Yeah, Italy. I think a lot of cured meats and sausages and richer meat sauces and things like that. Um, I absolutely love Lambrusco with those sorts of things. Like salamis and Lambrusco are amazing. There's something about the bubble and the fruit just cuts through the fat of the sausages. It's just really wonderful. Um, But I like that they are kind of thinking outside the box a little bit on food and wine pairings for this new style of wine. You know, they were talking about sushi and fusion dishes and 
and, you know, other things that you don't traditionally associate with uh, traditional Italian cuisine. And I think that that's probably pretty smart because look at the popularity of Prosecco and that Prosecco goes with all of these things too. So it's a nice way of, of viewing, hey, where can we go with this and how can we think outside the box a little bit? And surprisingly, they said it, it, it goes good with salumi and prosciutto <laughs> what do you know? and pasta, right? So and hot cheeses. Yeah. Oh yeah, cheeses too. There's a surprise. So anything else you thought interesting? I just think this is one of those things, you know, uh, maybe trends and restaurant scene might look at if you can get it, mm-hmm. but just unique, very yep. unique. Unique, product. something different. And we do see these new little sparkling wines popping up from all over the world. And I hope that it's a trend that continues. Thank you for listening to us on the wonderful world of wine today. We've been your hosts, Kim Simone and Mark Lenzi. You can find us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine. Please leave your questions and your comments. And older episodes can be found on iTunes. Cheers. Cheers.